You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, we are on the trek through the book of Genesis. And uh, think about the first 11 chapters in Genesis. It's covering thousands and thousands of years of human history. And then you get to chapter 12 and the story slows down. It zooms in on one man and his family. That's what's happening in Genesis 12. And in this chapter, we meet Abraham, uh, one of the most important people in the Old Testament, Abraham. And Genesis chapter 12 turns out to be one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Uh, It is a huge chapter. God calls Abraham out of Ur, and then God makes promises to Abraham. He promises Abraham a people. And it's from these people that a person would come, Jesus, the serpent crusher. He promises Abraham a place, the the land of Canaan, and uh, eventually the new heavens and the new earth. And then he promises Abraham a blessing. And it's through blessing Abraham that God would then bless all the nations that make up the world. And it's these promises, a place, a people, and a blessing that really carry the whole story of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is God coming through on these promises. That's the story from Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation is about these promises. And when you get to Genesis 12, uh, everything is great. Uh, Abraham has responded to God. He's come out of Ur. He's in the promised land. Everything is great for Abraham until the promise meets its first problem. This is the text that Jimmy covered last week. Uh, The promise meets this problem, famine. Uh, This is Abraham's first real test. A test is the moment where there's a gap between what we can see and what God says. And and that's this moment for Abraham. Abraham's like, hey, God, you promised this land, but we're about to starve to death, God. Uh, So famine is the problem. It provided the gap between what Abraham could see and what God says. And Abraham totally fails the test. That's chapter 12. I mean, he just makes a mess of everything. Rather than trusting in what God says, out of fear, he puts his trust in what he could see. So he goes on down to Egypt. That one bad fearful decision compounded into more bad decisions. He sells his wife up the river, up the Nile, right, in order to protect himself. He literally gives his wife to another man to protect himself. There's no way to sugarcoat. That's just terrible. It it is one of the worst moments of Abraham's life. That's what you have happening in Genesis chapter 12. And and by the way, it's one of the things I appreciate about the Bible. The Bible does not give us fictional characters. It gives us real people. And even real good people like Abraham have a whole lot of bad still in them. Right? This story reminds us, like every story of the Bible, that uh, there's one hero of the story. It's not Abraham. It's not David. It's not Paul in the New Testament. The one hero in the story of the Bible is Jesus. He's the hero of the story. So when you're reading about Abraham here, the story isn't about the awesomeness of Abraham. It is about the invincibility of God's promise. That's what this story is about. The whole point of Genesis is the promise maker is the promise keeper. He he will keep all the promises that he's made. So even in Genesis 12, when Abraham is an absolute failure, God is still faithful. Isn't that amazing that we have a God like that? 
Aren't we grateful that we have a God like that? It's what we call grace. And in Genesis 12, grace gets to work. It rescues Sarah from the, from the wreckage of Abraham's decisions. It blesses Abraham and Lot with money and possessions, uh, right? It brings Abraham back home into the promised land, back home to God. Uh, when he gets back home into the promised land, Abraham builds an altar and he worships God at the beginning of Genesis 13. And it's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of, of Abraham re-offering his life to God. It's a picture of him repenting for his fear and saying to God, no, I want to operate in faith, uh, God. Faith becomes the new operating principle again. It's, it's like Abraham has a reset. He restarts everything in Genesis chapter 13. And let that just be an encouragement to some of us. Some of us, like Abraham, have been operating out of fear. We are in the far country. We're down in Egypt somewhere making a mess out of our lives. And this morning, we are standing in the wreckage of our life. But even in our failures, God is faithful. Grace is available from God to you today. God really does, just like he did for Abraham, offers you a new start. A new start. That can happen. If you'll repent to him today, throw your life upon Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, you can have a new start right here in this moment. Even if you're standing in the wreckage like Abraham was, a new start is available. So now in Genesis 13, we're back on track. Uh, so faith is now the new operating principle, right? Uh, we're back in the land. Everything's going great. Uh, and now the promise faces another problem. The second big, or big problem to the promise uh, shows up. You see this in verses 5 through 7. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abraham and Lot went to Egypt poor, and they came out of Egypt back into the promised land rich. This is a rags to riches story. And, and you know how the saying goes, mo money equals mo problems. That's what's happening in Lot and Abraham's life. And here was their problem. That the place was just too small for them now that they had become wealthy and they have all these herds and all these things. It just wasn't big enough for them. It was too small. It's like putting three or four teenagers in one room. It's just bad things start happening in there, right? This is what's happening to Abraham and Lot. It's just not working. So the family is now to the point of severe relational strife. That's where we are. That's the problem. Now, here's what's going to happen in the rest of Genesis 13. We are going to see from this problem, two pictures get created. You're going to see a contrast, these two pictures. You're going to see folly on one side and faith on the other. Lot's folly and Abraham's faith. That's the picture we're about to see. Uh, th this, really, uh, this passage is really uh, a mirror that the Lord wants to hold up in front of us and to say, uh, who do you relate to in this passage? H how are you operating? Is it out of folly over here or faith over there? So first, Lot's folly. This is the first picture we see here, Lot's folly. Now, folly equals foolishness, right? And this is the picture we're seeing. We're seeing a picture of foolishness. You see it in verse 8. 
says, then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. So separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. You might underline that phrase, and he lifted up his eyes. And he saw that the Jordan River was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's just an ominous overtone setting us up for Genesis chapter 19. So let me give you three observations about Lot here. Number one, Lot's folly started with his eyes with his eyes. You see this in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. You might, again, just underline that phrase. That is a loaded phrase. And Lot lifted up his eyes. Now that phrase is loaded because it is meant to take us right back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? Here's what we find there. The serpent comes with all of his lies to Eve. Uh, to Eve. Eve, he's holding out on you. Uh, God is. Uh, Eve, you can't trust God. And then it says Eve lifted up her eyes and saw that the fruit was good, a delight to the eyes. That's Genesis 3. And the point here is that uh, the author is trying to, to help us see that what Eve did, Lot does. He is following in the footsteps of his great, 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 Grandma, that's what Lot is doing in this text. Commentators are quick to pick up on this lifting of his eyes. It is uh, what we might call a fleshy look. Uh, he's looking for all the wrong things. His attention is, is set on uh, the things that it just should not be set on. So again, think about Lot for a moment. He went down to Egypt poor. He came back rich, right? It is rags to riches for our man Lot. And Lot wanted a whole lot more of all of that. He wanted more of the world. He wanted more of that wealth. He wanted more of what Egypt could provide him. That is what Lot's attention is fixed on. You see it there in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of what? Of Egypt. That is what Lot is after. He is after more of this stuff in this world. That, that's what his attention is fixed on. His eyes are on the wrong things. And here is why that's so dangerous. What you behold, you become. What you look at, you start to look like. That, that's how it works. So th the question is, what are you looking at? A lot is looking at all the wrong things. All the wrong things. His eyes, his attention are given to the wrong things. In 1 John 2, chapter, 50, or chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we read this. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is what Lot is doing. The reason his eyes are set on the world, wealth, what this world, he can get out of this world, is because he loves the world. John goes on to say, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. 
His attention, his eyes are set on the world. This is where his foolishness started. Just, just his attention. What he's given his heart to, his love to, his loyalty to, it's, the, it's just the wrong thing. And this gives us a moment to ask, what is our attention on? What are we looking at, longing for, wanting, desiring? What is it that we're after in life? Is it set on this world? Just a little more wealth? Like lot, do we just want a lot more of what this world can give us? If so, this text is an, is an invitation from the Lord to reset our gaze upon God and his promises. Here's where Lot's foolishness started. It started with his eyes. Secondly, Lot's folly was progressive. His foolishness was progressive. He didn't just wake up one day uh, foolish. It was a long, slow journey toward foolishness. And this is how sin works. Sin works like the tide, not a tidal wave. It is slow. One small, a small step after one small step. That's how it works. And by the way, this is why the hundreds, if not thousands of decisions you make every day are so important. These small, little, mundane decisions are either moving you toward Jesus and a person with godly character, or they're moving you away from Jesus and a person of really ungodly character. All of your little, small decisions in your life are doing that. Do you keep your word in this moment? Do you force your way into this moment? Do, do you lie to cover this little? It's all shaping you godliness, or it's shaping you to ungodliness, toward Jesus, away from Jesus. All of our little small decisions are doing that. This is the way that sin works. And this was true of Lot. In chapter, or in verse 10 of chapter 12, he's in the mid-Jordan Valley. Then he moves to Zoar. Then in uh, verse 12, he's down at Sodom's door. We know that's not a good place for him to be, right? This is bad news. He's at Sodom's door by the time you get to verse 12. Then when you skip forward to Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, he's in Sodom, right? He's now living in the city. He, he's in Sodom. And then you get to chapter 19, verse 1. This is 25 years later. He is now at the city gates. In other words, he is in city leadership. The people of Sodom are now his people. He has become one of them. That is the progression of Lot's life. And this is how sin works. It's progressive. It's slow. It's methodical. Uh, I grew up wrestling. It was just kind of the thing my family did. And uh, I, I kind of have this joke that I'm like, man, I came out of the womb and I slid straight into spandex, into a single. It's just kind of the life I grew up in. It's all my brothers did. It's just like the thing we had going on. And when I was in the eighth grade, our team, uh, junior high team, went to an overnight tournament, which meant it was going to be me and three other eighth grade boys in a hotel room. What could go wrong? So uh, here is what happens when you get, uh, you know, you start living in a hotel room with a few other eighth grade boys. You start learning some of life's lessons and some of its primary rules really fast. And here is what I learned. The number one rule of life in that hotel room with three other eighth grade boys, the number one rule, this is the rule you cannot break. It's the unbreakable rule. You always, when you're taking a shower, you always lock the bathroom door. <laughs> always. It's not even a question. It's the number one rule of life. You always lock the bathroom door. And so uh, we get back that night. I jump in the shower. And that is when I realized 
I broke the number one commandment. The greatest commandment. The one you can't break. The unbreakable one was broken. And I knew I broke it the moment I heard the door creak. This was the moment, right? Now, what I am expecting to fly over the sh uh, shower curtain is a, just a tsunami of like ice cold water. That's the norm, right? It's, you get the water as cold as you can, you throw it over on that guy, it's hilarious, we all laugh. So that's what I'm expecting. I'm looking up over the shower curtain and I do not see cold water. What I see is a cat being thrown over the shower curtain. <laughs> that's what's going down. It's a moment I'll always remember. Me and that cat making eye contact. We bonded in that moment. I'm terrified. Am I going to make it? Am I going to survive? Then I realize in this moment of eye contact with this cat, he is more terrified than I am. I mean, this was like the worst day of his life. He has been caught by eighth grade boys, lobbed like a grenade over a... Sh I mean, he is having a bad day, right? And so here he comes. He's twisting. He's turning. I'm fighting for my life. He hits the, the bottom of the shower. And I mean, like a missile, he is out of that bathroom. Now, I was so impressed by the whole thing that my first question when I got out of the shower is like, how did you catch the cat? And can we catch another one? Who's taking a shower next, man? I mean, th that's where I am. And here's the story I got back. They're like, man, he was under this car and we couldn't get him. And uh, so then we came up with our plan. Uh, we positioned guy number one by the tire. And then we grab food and we throw some food in front of that cat. And it's like one step in front of the cat. And he takes the one step and he grabs the food. And then he gets back under the car. And then we throw the piece of next uh, piece of food two steps out, and he takes two steps, and then he gets back into the car, and then three steps, and then four steps, then five steps, and then we get him six steps out, and he's out from under the car, and our man grabs him, and then the worst day of his life happened after that, right? <laughs> now there is your picture of sin's progression. It is one small step after one small step. We're under the 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 car of God's protection. And we keep taking one step after one step out of it. And there we are. I, I mean, think about our man Lot for a moment. He didn't just find himself in Sodom. He took one small step after one small step. And those small decisions were shaping him into the type of person who would look at Sodom and say, that's my city, man. That's where I'm going. We don't just find ourselves in an adulterous affair. It's one small decision, thousands of them. One small little decision, one small little decision, and it's making us into the person who will say yes to this affair. Th that's how sin works. Right now, all of these small decisions are making you into the person who will say yes to God, be loyal to God, that he can count on, you'll be trustworthy to him, or it's making you into the person who will wreck your life. Friend, th this text is meant to be that mirror in front of you to ask the question, are you making all of these small decisions that will lead, just like for Lot, in ruin? That, that will lead you to wreckage? Or are you making all these slow, small, little, godliness is also progressive. Are you making all these slow, little, small decisions that are leading you to godliness? Friend, if you are making decisions right now that are leading you away from God and toward Sodom, friend, this is your invitation from the Lord to stop that. 
to, to come back home to him, to repent, to throw your life again upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His folly was progressive. And thirdly, Lot's folly was shown in his prayerlessness. In his prayerlessness. You will either make decisions by instinct or by inquiry. Those are your two options. You're going to make decisions one of these two ways. Instinct decision-making is, is decision-making by what you can see. Right? So it's, your, it's, it's life comes at you. And you're, you're making decisions based on your wisdom, your experiences, your resources by what you can see. That's instinct decision-making. Inquiry decision-making is decision-making by what God says. God, what do you want in this moment? And I don't care if I can see it or not, God, that's what I'm going to do. Th those are your two options. It's instinct or inquiry. Now, Lot is the poster child for instinct decision-making. He is making decisions in this text by what he can see, not by what God has says. Do you notice that there's no moment in here where Lot's like, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask the Lord for what he would want. You don't see that show up. He's just, it's all instinct. It's, oh, that land looks good. Let's do that. Oh, it looks like I could probably get wealthy over there. Let's do that. It, it, oh, I, if I took that job in that place, I'm going to get a raise. That's going to be awesome. So let's just do that. If I make this decision, we move over there. Let, let's just do, that, that's his decision making. It's all instinct. There's not a moment where he says, God, is this what you want? And instinct decision making will lead you just like it did Lot to ruin, to, to ruin, to wreckage. The opposite of that is decision-making by inquiry. Jesus, what do you want? What, what do you want in this moment? Now, gosh, I just feel such an angstiness in this moment because I think almost all of us, if we'll look at our life, make our decisions by instinct. Just, just look at the last two weeks, three weeks, four. I mean, I've felt so convicted by the Lord in this. That we make our decisions by instinct. Oh, here, here's life. It's coming at me. And just wisdom and, and experience. And we'll find a way through it and make, make something happen. Rather than saying, God, what is it that you would want in this moment? God, I, I don't want to move into this moment, make this decision without you. Uh, th this would just be a healthy practice for all of us, for us to build road bumps, speed bumps into our life and into our decision making. Before we make a decision on anything, the speed bump hits and, and we're just reminded, oh, before I do anything, I'm going to ask the Lord, what do you want? God, God, will you speak into this? God, will you lead me? Will you show me? If there's something I'm missing, God, would you, would you help me? God, I want to listen and obey you in this morning. What, what would you want? Just creating the speed bump in our life. And every decision, we're, we're just not going to make decisions by instinct. So every decision, we hit the speed bump. God, what is it that you would want in this moment? Lot's folly was shown in his prayerlessness. He's making his decisions by instinct, not inquiry. So th this is a picture of Lot's folly. And again, it's like a mirror in front of us to say, where are we like Lot? And here's the truth for us. We got a whole lot of Lot in all of us, right? Yeah, you do, I do. We can see ourselves in this picture. And anywhere we can see ourselves in Lot, Jesus is just inviting us. Would you, would you come back home to me? Yeah, stop going down the road of foolishness and let's get back on this road. What we would call the road of faith. Here's our man, Abraham. Abram is a picture of faith. That's our second picture, Abram's faith. 
Abram is learning to live by faith. You remember he started out with a weak faith, then through testing, it, it, it took the journey up to a growing faith. And then through more testing, that growing faith turned into a great faith. And his journey is our journey. This is what the Lord is doing in your life right now. He is making you into a person of great faith. That's the journey you're on. We're all on if we're sons and daughters of God. And God does that by testing, by putting a gap between what we can see and what he says, and then asking us, will you trust me? Will you lean into this? Will you follow me in this? Will you grow in faith with me in this? Would you trust me in this moment? This is how we, we grow in our faith. And in this moment of testing, our man Abraham aces the test. I mean, he blows this one out of the water. Let me just show you a couple of things that faith does in his life and in our life. First, Here's what we see happening. Faith makes us peacemakers. It makes us peacemakers. Uh, one of the things you're going to see throughout Genesis is that trouble is just all up and in the home front. I mean, these families are an absolute mess. And I hope that's some encouragement to you. If, if you're looking at your family and you're like, gosh, that is a train wreck. If that's what you say when you look at your family, you ought to be able to look at Abraham and his family and think they're a train wreck. And if God can use that train wreck and redeem that train wreck, he can probably use and redeem our train wreck, right? So just let that be some encouragement for you. Abraham's family on the home front, it is a disaster. And this is one of the first problems we see showing up in Abraham's family. Abraham's people are fighting with Lot's people. And that fighting is on the verge of serious relational strife. And in this moment of conflict, Abraham takes the initiative. You see this in verse 8. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. He doesn't move away from Lot in this moment of conflict. He moves with an open heart toward Lot. We could say it this way. Abraham is eager for peace. That's what faith makes us. It makes us eager for peace. Now, I think there's a lesson here for us. In all of our normal, everyday conflicts, our, our normal sort of misunderstanding and hurts, just all the things that happen between us and people in a fallen world, there's a lot of things that are going to happen to you and me. And in all of those moments, Abraham is showing us what our attitude, if we're operating in faith, is going to be. Our attitude, when faith is the operating system in our heart, the attitude is going to be one that is eager for peace. We're going to step toward them with an open heart. That's what faith in the midst of conflict looks like. Now, anti-faith or fear shows up in a, in a very different way. Fear folds our arms. Fear turns our back to that person. And fear makes us either declare war on them or to create distance with them. That's fear showing up in moments of conflict. And I agree with one pastor when he said, I can tell you after almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, this makes all the difference in the world. When two people are in conflict, husband, wife, friends, whatever it is, when two people are in conflict and they're coming and saying, we are a train wreck. This is not good. Uh, we just keep hurting each other. We just can't figure this thing out, but we want help. We want to be on the other side of this. We are eager for peace. We want that. When two people come like that to a moment of conflict, they almost always get to the other side of it. Virtually every time they're going to find their way through it when they're eager for peace. Friends, are you eager for peace? Are you eager for it? The longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I am that bitterness and unforgiveness 
is one of the primary hindrances to a life of faith. Uh, this is the area where we are all very prone to draw the line and say, God, no. You cannot ask me to go do that. I will not go do that with that person. No, I've written this person off. There is nothing else that's going to happen between me and them. No, never again. God, that's where I draw the line. We are prone to do that. If they want reconciliation, they will crawl up my doorstep and they will beg for it. God, that's that's how this story is going to go. And friend, that is anti-gospel. The gospel is that God moved toward us when we were enemies. And through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, he made us friends. Right? That, that is the good news of, of Jesus. And if, if God treated us like we so often treat others, we'd all be in hell, right? That's where we'd be. So at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. We've been made right with God, adopted into his family, made friends. And when we taste that reconciling grace, what a Christian does is they give that grace to others. So just take a moment here and ask yourself the question, who am I in conflict with? It probably doesn't take but about three seconds for the Lord to start bringing people to mind. Who am I in conflict with? Then ask yourself this question. Am I eager for peace? Eager for it. Moving toward, not away from. Not declaring war, creating distance, but but moving toward eager for peace. If not, that is where faith needs to show up for you. That is where faith right now counts for you. That is the test that God has in front of you. And it's only in stepping into that gap between what you can see and what God says that your faith is going to grow. Faith makes us peacemakers. Second thing we see is faith opens our hands. It opens our hands. Faith, again, is is believing what God says over what we see. And faith, when it's operating in our life, it opens our hands. We just stop grasping, right? So think about this moment with Abraham. God promised Abraham this land. And Abraham received the promise in faith, which meant he no longer had to force and manipulate and protect the promise because he's trusting God to do that. That's what is happening in this moment. And because he's trusting and resting in God, the promise maker, to protect his promise and to keep it, here's what Abraham can say to Lot. He looks at Lot and says, Lot, you take your pick. If you go that way, I'll go this way. If you go that way, then I'll go that way. You take your pick first and I'll just take what's left. That's what Abraham's done. Now just notice, there's no grasping here. There's no fighting. There's no uh, manipulating Abraham or uh, Lot in this moment. He is absolutely free in this moment. He's just free to say, Lot, you do what you want. And I think God will, will meet me on the other side of this. That the promise keeper will show himself to be faithful to me. Now, this moment in Genesis 13 is a precursor to Genesis 22. In that text, Genesis 22, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his promised son. In this text, he's willing to sacrifice the promised land. Believing in both of those moments that if they were taken by God, they would be raised by God. He's trusting God. That's what he's doing. And by trusting God, his hands came open. In Genesis 22, with the son, and in Genesis 13, with the land. This is what faith does. It opens our hands. And listen, this was in a culture where everyone reading this story around Abraham would be like, Abraham, is it, is it, this is your call. You take what you want. 
You're the uncle. You're the older one. You're the one that this is about. Abraham, you make the call. And Abraham's like, no, I'm not going to operate that way. I, I am trusting God. Like you pick, I'll take what you don't want. Faith opens our hands. When our heart is full of faith, we stop grasping manipulating everybody around us, trying to control everything around us. We stop fighting everyone and everything for what we think has to happen in our life. We just stop all that and, and we open up our hands to receive from God what he has promised, what he wants for us. So just ask yourself, are you living like Abraham here? Are you living with a heart wide open like that? Hands wide open like that. Has faith opened up your hands? Or do you see a lot of grasping, controlling, manipulating people? Do you see that showing up in your life? Faith opens our hands. And the last thing we'll close here. Faith opens up our lives. It opens our lives. I love how this text ends. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, Abram, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. I love this. Lot takes his pick. He takes the choice stuff, whatever that looked like for him. And then God comes to Abraham and, and, and God lifts up Abraham's eyes. And he says, I want you to see all of this land. This is what I'm promised to you. This is what I'm giving you, Abraham. And then God doubles down on his promise. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Dust. The point is, no one can count dust and no one will be able to count your offspring, Abraham. That's how many are coming for you. And then he goes on, verse 17. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. It's like a, a good real estate agent. Uh, God comes to Abraham and says, let's go do a tour, Abraham. I want you to see all that I've promised to you. And by making that tour of the land, uh, that is Abraham's way of, of staking his life on the promise, saying, I believe this is gonna be true, oh God. That's what we see happening here for Abraham. And then you get to verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 13 starts with worship, this fresh start, and it ends with worship. Him, him praising God at the end of this text. Now this, this text is showing us the two ways to live. There's only two ways that you're going to live. Here are the two ways. Number one, you're going to trust yourself to make something of your life. You're going to trust you to do that. God, I'm going to trust me to make something of my life. That, that's way number one. You trust yourself to make something of your life. So you're going to find yourself forcing, manipulating, controlling everything to try to make something of your life. Here's option two. You can trust God to make something of your life. But you're going to trust one of these two, you or God, to make something of your life. Those are the only two ways to live. And if you trust you to make something of your life, here's the sadness of it. Your life will be as big as you can make it. It's going to be that big. But if you trust God to make something of your life, it will be as big as God can make it. Does that not sound a lot better? It's going to be as big as you can make it or as big as God can make it. Those are the two options. You manipulate and you get what you can do. You trust God for miracles, you get what God can do. Th those are the two options of your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to shrink my life down to what I can do. I don't want that. I want my life to grow and to become as big as what God can do. Amen?
And that's what this text is inviting us into. The life of Abraham. Here's what Abraham did. He received from God a huge life. And this text is, is Jesus looking at you and I and the risen Jesus. He's just inviting us to do what Abraham did. To, to open up our hands and to receive from God a huge life. A life that's as big as only God could make it. So would you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to press down into you what he'd have for you today. What a beautiful text. So ask the Holy Spirit. Show me what that one thing is that you want me to hear. Those two things are that you want me to hear. It's a contrast between folly and faith. What direction is your life headed? Where does faith count right now in your life? And friends, for some of us, like where it counts is today is that big decision day where we throw our lives upon Jesus, asking him to save us and rescue us. So, so maybe that's where it needs to count for you today. Uh, taking that decisive step toward him. Maybe it's in that relational conflict. Maybe it's opening up your hands and being generous with all that you have. And as you're asking the Lord to be clear with you and, and what that looks like today, I just want to encourage you to grab that who's your one card and ask the Lord for that one person who is far from him that he wants you to pray for and pursue for the last quarter of the year. Then you can see the two sides of that card. One side is for you. You can tear the card in half after you fill it out. It goes in your Bible as a bookmark to remind you to pray for that person every time you open your Bible. The other copy comes up here in one of the baskets. And this is a way as you put that card in the basket to say, God, this person is your person. God, would you rescue them? Would you save them? And God, I am committing to praying for and pursuing them. So as you're ready today, you can put those cards in the basket. So Father, come now and meet with us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.